0: Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Canis Tracy. Hello. This is episode 35, and today we are interviewing Dr. Ralph Dudgeon. Dr. Dudgeon is the author of The key Bugle and also Das Flugelhorn. He is a Cute Bugle researcher and performer, and he is a retired professor from Cortland. So we are super excited to have Dr. Dudgeon on the Early American Brass Band Podcast today and we can't thank him enough for taking the time to share his experience and expertise with us.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was great to hear um, kind of his, his music, his long musical uh, career, very, very active um, and still active. Um, even though he's retired from teaching at the collegiate level, you know, he's still doing lessons and playing. He mentioned he's in the, in the stages of planning for a new recording project, <laughs> you know, in retirement. So that's, that's fantastic. It was a great conversation. We think you'll really enjoy it. And a third and, edition of the book. Exactly. Yeah. Third edition of uh, the book, all on the key bugle. Uh, so that that's uh, really neat to get that information out there and get an updated version of that. So if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can support us on Patreon and Teespring. Those are uh, the two best ways to do it in a monetary fashion. Uh, but we're also on YouTube uh, where we, we put up um, the, the full episodes and um, excerpted you know shorter more digestible uh, parts of the episodes as well we're on facebook twitter and instagram you can just search the early american brass band podcast and give us a follow so that way you can stay up to date on everything that we release
0: and without any further ado here is our interview with dr ralph dudgeon enjoy So thank you so much, Dr. Ralph Dudgeon, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're extremely honored and thankful that you'll take some of your time out this morning to speak with us. So thank you very much.
2: Well, it's a, it's nice to be here. At my age, it's nice to be anywhere.
0: <laughs> it's happy to have you. Can you maybe give us a little bit of your musical background and some of your musical upbringing and how you became interested in uh, this field of early brass and keyed bugles?
2: Well, sure. Like Stephen, I'm a native Pennsylvanian. Uh, I was born in 1948 in a little suburb of Pittsburgh called East McKeesport. Mm. And my father was an amateur trumpet player. My mother was an amateur pianist. Uh, and uh, they they played music, you know, before and after dinner, sometimes before or after dinner, mm. uh, together. And that's my first some of my first memories of my father playing the trumpet, looking over my mother's shoulder at the uh, sheet music <laughs> on the piano. Nice. and uh, he was a, a really good trumpet player in retrospect uh, he he had a teacher named Patty Evanson who was a cornet virtuoso hmm. uh, uh, that I I only found out m- many many years later and he didn't have Arbin's books or Clark's or anything around the house it was all a big this big pile of sheet music by our piano <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: and uh, wasn't too long into and in my own trumpet playing, you know, as a little kid, I started, I think I was in fourth grade, 10 years old or something, that I realized that he was transposing everything. Mm. And not just, you know, from C parts, you know, you say, well, let's play it down a fourth or whatever. And mm. my, my mother and my father were, you know, had those, those kind of little games that they played. And um, we were churchgoers, and my father would sit in the congregation with me in the middle and my mother on the other side. my mother would be singing alto, and my father would be singing the tenor parts. And I'd look around and everybody else is singing the melody. I'm going, well, Okay. <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, so um, I grew up, you know, sort of watching my father's fingers. Uh, we would play together sometimes. And then um, I had a good music teacher in, uh, in Eastman Keysport, a guy named Frank Stofan, who was a pianist and a choral uh, director specialist, but he taught all the instruments. It was a tiny little town and uh, so he taught elementary school and i went to the elementary school that my grandfather built
3: mm-hmm.
2: he's a contractor and uh, as a matter of fact the house that my youngest son lives in in east mckeesport is uh there's a house that my great grand my great grandfather built wow so um there are many houses in the town that were built by my relatives wow so um uh it was a, a, a musical uh, school frank stofen had um people, if you, you chose your instrument in fourth grade, and if you didn't chose an instrument, you were in his choir. And if you chose an instrument, you were in the band. And so there was like 200 kids in the school, 100 people in the band, 100 people in the choir. <laughs>
3: yeah, thanks.
2: And um, it, you know, just, it just seemed like a kind of a natural thing. Mm-hmm. So um, Frank finally said, about when I was in seventh grade, it was time to study with a professional trumpet player. And uh, he hooked me up with a guy named Eddie Shiner in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Eddie taught at Duquesne and he was an alumni of the Dorsey bands with his brother, Matty Shiner, who was a Mm -hmm. trombone player.
3: Hmm.
2: And um, they taught in a a little um, old tenement house called Progressive Music Company in McKeesport. And my mother would put me on a trolley with a little white shirt on and uh, I would go down from my lessons down there and uh, walk about a half a mile to Progressive from the, the trolley stop. And, um, uh um when i come back she'd take the white shirt off me because it would be completely uh, black with yeah. uh, with uh, soot because that's where all the mills were mm-hmm. on the river. and um but i learned a lot uh, uh eddie shiner was a real taskmaster. he made you sing everything before you played it he would tap on the music stand with his pencil and all his pencil looked like little beavers at chewed them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, he had a very a darkened uh, a studio, and there were instruments hanging on a wall, double <laughs> bell euphoniums, old cornets, and mm-hmm. uh, lots of his pictures of big band memorabilia, and people that, and he had some famous students, as you might imagine, coming out of Duquesne University.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so uh, he was a great teacher. But my father, uh, the steel business was going under. This is in the early '60s, '61, '62. Um, the steel business was uh, fading there, and uh, he got a job offer for an aircraft company in California. So I went to uh, went to along with my family to California when I was about 13. And it was like I would died and gone to heaven because you know this little mill town in uh, in Pittsburgh was it was it was uh, Pittsburgh was kind of a depressing place at that time. Anyway, so I got interested in uh, I had a great high school band I uh, at, um, in Chula Vista, California. I could see the Tijuana bull Bullring from my backyard. No. Oh well. uh there. So we were close to the border, about mm-hmm. two miles from the border, and um, uh, so there's a mix of uh, cultures and. Uh, Stuff and I got involved in uh, music was the center of my life in high school. I was a band geek and I was in a bunch of rock bands and things like that. And I studied with a guy in um, in Chula Vista named Bill Bowers, who was a gentleman from New Orleans.
3: Hmm.
2: And he played um, cornet in the style Herbert L. Clark, and he could play Dixieland stuff. And he at one time he, he I think he's the only person I ever heard of that played. Uh, first trumpet in the San Diego Symphony, and he also played first trombone in the San Diego wow. Symphony at a different time. Oh wow! So you know he was a very versatile guy, and he was hooked into the gig scene in in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I had a I had a very good high school uh, band. They, they would win these parade competitions, and uh, the year that I was a senior and band president at Hilltop High School, they won the uh award at the maytime band review to go to the um uh, roses tournament of roses parade and,
3: hmm. nice uh
2: and in, and in college i studied with louis Campilla who was a trumpet player in san diego and it was at san diego state and um uh dave Greeno, who was then uh, first trumpet player in the uh, symphony lived right across the street from my parents in chula vista hmm. and uh so i I'd often, uh, you know, tag along with him on gigs and things. And we'd go to, before there was an International Trumpet Guild, we'd go to these meetings in Colorado, the trumpet symposiums hmm. uh, that were at the University of Colorado in uh, Denver, I believe. Hmm. And um, uh, so we, you know, we were, you know, trumpet buddies. And he was my sort of a mentor to me. Uh, so in between uh, my BA and my master's, I... Um, I started studying with a guy named John Kleiman in Los Angeles. John had been a studio; he was first trumpet player in the L.A. Philharmonic from '48 to 1968, and then he retired after a series of heart attacks. Hmm. And uh, uh, he taught uh, at, at some of the other colleges, but he always gave lessons in his house on Sun. It was right off Sunset Strip Boulevard in That's- Los Angeles, and I studied with. Uh, I would sit in a waiting room with people like lee laughlin you know from chicago from the rock band yeah yeah, yeah exactly. other trumpet stars would be waiting for their uh and people in um uh las vegas would get together and fly john out for a master class you know yeah. so he was uh he was uh and john was uh was was real straight too he uh really uh didn't mince any words with uh when something was not good
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was uh, and i studied with him pretty much until i i i um uh, i left san diego i got my master's in in performance with jack
1: this is referring to jack logan dr dudgeon's teacher for his master's degree
2: and i was just studying in addition uh, with john and then when i started working in the symphony um uh, I started uh, in the summer seasons with um, with Dave Greeno, my neighbor across the street, and uh, back and sitting in in pits and stuff with him. And um, at that time, San Diego it was the same group of musicians that played the symphony, the ballet, the opera. And uh, in the in the sixty late 60s, uh, San Diego Opera was really going strong. Tito Capabianco was the artistic director, and uh, you know Beverly Sills was singing Norma
3: mm,
0: no, yeah.
2: I played yeah. the backstage group when she sang and Norman Traigle sang Mephistopheles and it was you know it was really a rich environment yeah. so I lived mm-hmm. on a on a hill it was uh, about 5 minutes from the opera house from uh, from uh, the theater civic theater and uh, I could get down there and my first job was uh, a phone call so uh and i just got back from the aspen music school where i studied with um with uh um, jerry Schwartz. Okay. and uh, uh i got a phone call and said uh are, are you warmed up <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah i said well, you get down to the hall uh, you're gonna you're you're leading the offstage brass for um for norma there you go um, wow and uh we we got a call from joseph get in san francisco he's in a car accident and uh he, he won't be there uh, you're you're our trumpet player and i had i got i got the i got to the gig and it was one of those things where you're backstage with a remote uh, thing uh, and um uh and uh i had been you know john climate had taught me how to play loud
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> all these curt layers of curtain between uh, the band the offstage band and mm. and um uh, i don't know why I'm remembering this stuff now but anyway. <laughs> it's a good story I like but, it. Uh, but uh I, I i you know i came uh, i got there and and i had just you know i knew the i knew the music i had listened to norma millions of times and um uh so um uh i we finished the dress rehearsal the contractor who was a percussionist uh, Came back and gave me a big hug, and he said, "If there's anything I can ever do for you, <laughs> you know." And he said, "He said tonight you saved my ass." <laughs> and I worked. I worked the rest of the uh, season. If there was ever you know an extra trumpet player or whatever in any of those orchestras, I played the opera and and I play. Uh, I play. Well, I was what you what you would call a utility player. So <laughs> I got in the orchestra without ever auditioning. <laughs> and there you go it's and the Ver- ideal way to do it uh, <laughs> and when I, I came back from uh i came back from aspen that summer uh, i would be sitting in the orchestra and we'd have like werner torkinowski was our one of our conductors and he recognized me hmm. from uh, and he would come back and you know talk and chat with the brass section and so forth and we had aaron copeland um uh, uh, conducting and copeland had been at aspen and i had been um in a brass quintet that read Copeland's um, uh, His his composition students were, hmm. um, oh wow, were uh, you know trying out brass quintet. Their assignment was to write a brass quintet, and we uh-huh. were we would sit and play, and sometimes Copeland would show, and sometimes it was just the students, and um, and then uh, so. But I got and Copeland came back, and he said, you know, Ralph,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Nice>. <laughs> and that's cool,
2: and all of these. I was uh, I was about twenty. 22 years old or something, and uh, uh, and probably one of the younger members of the orchestra, if not the youngest, and um, and everybody's going where, where does he know these people from? You
3: know? mm-hmm.
2: yeah. And uh, so that started my orchestral life, and um, um, I never uh, never looked back at, after that. I just always uh, would get on the sub list in a town and play in the orchestra until I got on the orchestra in the orchestra. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So now it's pretty much the same story now.
0: I'm curious with, uh, I believe it was your first teacher who had the, like the double bell euphoniums and the cornets and stuff on the wall. Yeah. Um, was, do you think that that maybe planted a seed in the back of your mind of kind of like the, the, uh, the older instruments or some of the novelty instruments that might have kind of crept up a little bit later for you?
2: Yeah, I think that was in college. Mostly, uh, I, um, my first instrument was a, a, a bugle that I bought from my, um, scout master. I was probably about 12 years old <laughs> and, um, I bought it for $6 yeah. I still have that too. As long, along with my father's King's H.N. Uh, White Silver Flare uh, trumpet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, but it was in college that I really started. I played in the Harry Parch ensemble that was rehearsing for an opera and all these weird instruments. And I started it, and I um, was uh, very interested in uh, the collegium musicum that we had. Mm. I, was, I was told that as a trumpet player, I wouldn't fit in with a Renaissance dance band at all. <laughs> and so they made me, uh, the, the director of the group gave me uh, a, uh, a, a book by um, Steps that was nine recorder studies. And he said, if you can play this book on your alto recorder, we'll let you in. So <laughs> I, I <laughs> and it's still, it's a difficult book. <laughs> uh, Hans Ehrlich Steps. And so uh, anyway, I, uh, I, I, played the recorder and, uh, but I loved all those other instruments all the crumb horns and the shams and the sackbutts, and, and, uh, and uh, particularly uh, it was, uh, in the you know, sixties. So, um, the, uh, people that were in that group were different than the people that were in the college orchestra or the college, you know, marching band. They were mm-hmm. people, they were people that were. uh, you know the girls wore mexican wedding shirts and played the harp you know and they were beautiful and had long gorgeous hair and, <laughs> <laughs> and they improvised you know and it was uh, uh they had the uh, uh they 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 would play uh you know uh, cantigas de santa maria or the music from alfonso the 10th and uh and 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 you know start improvising on that and the people that were in that group were all um uh, uh, you know, they were composers and people that later uh, continued in in, in in the music profession, not just as teachers, but as performers and, uh, you know, that sort of uh, got real serious about it. We mm-hmm. had people like Michael Culver, who's a cornetist, that went to Basel huh. and uh, uh, and studied in the Scola Cantorum there and became a famous cornetto virtuoso with no. Bruce Dickey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it was. Uh, I was more fascinated with the instruments as sculpture. I started making instruments and hmm. uh, things like that. That, uh, um, and then the collecting kind of started. You know, several sort of <laughs> yeah. old cornets. Anyway, the key bugle started. Um, I was uh, between between the masters and the uh, uh, and I was teaching, and I it was a period of time before I start. I couldn't really think of a. A good doctoral project. I knew that Ed Tar and Don Smithers had worked on the broke trumpet stuff, and my friend Michael Culver and Bruce and Bruce Dickey were writing the cornetto. Uh, were studying the cornetto repertoire. I liked the cornetto. I played the cornetto, and I liked the natural trumpet, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to infringe uh, on on other people's research territory. Yeah. And I was so I wanted to find a, a niche. Uh, I and I visited the Smithsonian. Uh, my wife Ginger, who is also an early musician, who I met in the course of all of this, um, uh, her parents lived in Falls Church, Virginia, so we would visit them often. And I would go to the Smithsonian, and I met Robert Sheldon, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, I was in. a I was originally trying to. I wrote a letter and got an appointment with him to look at the natural trumpets that were in the Smithsonian. And of course, it's mm-hmm. that's you know basically an American collection. And by that time, they're you know the the natural trumpets are not that great. Mm-hmm. But we were in the back room, and uh, he gave me a set of white gloves, and he says, uh, "We we had this guy named Bob Eliasson over here. He wrote a postdoc thing on the." key bugles in the United States and he showed me a copy of this and he said these instruments are beautiful they were well crafted and they play great. Here's a mm-hmm. pair of white gloves I have to I have to do some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so so um um so he was gone for about 20 minutes and I was him around on this thing and I started playing um, Carromeo Bain and some of the little opera tunes that I knew and um um and he came back and i was playing the key bugle
3: and
0: wow. so
2: he recommended a couple of people i i was gotten pretty enthusiastic about it and of course at that time i had a little bit of time on my hands at least i thought i did i was playing third trumpet in the, in the symphony he goes well you you know you're not principal trumpet you have time to practice it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> and uh, um and i was teaching uh, during the day and uh, so um uh, so he gave me a couple of names of collectors, and he, uh, I got in touch with a guy named Bill Gribben in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and I bought a couple of key bugles from him for about two hundred and fifty dollars apiece. Hmm. Yeah. And I got a local music um, uh, guy who was an alumni of the Allentown band, by the way. Oh wow! A guy named uh, Keeler to uh, restore these things because he was a famous woodwind player. My sister was a clarinetist, and she had her all of her clarinet work done by. Uh, mr keeler so uh so i started playing it and by the bicentennial i had a little band together and we were playing uh, stuff and i and uh, sheldon was invited me to the smithsonian to play and there had been a couple of recordings made by judith plant and bob sheldon himself did a stephen foster uh, album where he played a little key bugle mm-hmm. and uh so um uh, uh so it was sort of something in the air. And also the other thing about it, by this time I was getting serious about a, a dissertation topic. And you guys know, you're studying this stuff, that you have to delimit your study.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
2: can't study everything. right? You know, <laughs> you gotta, if you're going to write a dissertation, you've got to uh, narrow it down. And I thought this is the perfect topic um, for, for study because it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end you know uh, you know i at that time i thought the key bugle was invented by robert uh, by joseph halliday and in 1810 and by 1870 it was you know no longer there mm-hmm. and so uh that was my premise mm-hmm. and i had no idea what kind of a rabbit hole i was going down <laughs> with, with the dissertation and so forth so um but uh, at for the time for the time that you know that i was uh writing that dissertation it was a great topic, and no one else was researching it. Bob uh, Eliasson was on to the Henry Ford Museum and doing other things. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, and he was one of actually one of my first sponsors. I, m- one of my early concerts on Key Bugle was at the Henry Ford Museum with oh, cool. Bob, Bob playing off of Clyde. Nice. Yeah. So, cool. uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so there was there was a, a lot of support uh, uh, in the museum community
1: mm-hmm. for this
2: this kind of thing and um there's of course there's a controversy of whether we should play these things at all because they're artifacts and mm-hmm. so forth but uh that's you know at the time I was studying you could walk into a museum put on a pair of cotton gloves and play whatever you wanted
3: yeah mm-hmm. there you
0: go so um, i know you said that the uh, the research hadn't been largely delved into yet besides uh, Bob and before you kind of got into it, were there players before you of the instrument? Of yeah. uh, Key, Key Bugle in particular, I mean. No,
2: yeah, there was a woman named Judith Plant, um, and she played it with Fred Benkovic in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And she did a, an album for, um, or the she was among a group of people that did an album for the New World Records called Come Trip It and it was uh, you know popular songs and she played uh, some quick steps and things like that she played the keyed bugle mm-hmm. uh, when i met her she was in possession of a tortoise shell bugle that was basically a high b flat piccolo keyed bugle
3: uh, <laughs> it was made yeah. out
2: of tortoise shell <laughs> and uh, so she um, so she was an early pioneer and of course bob Sheldon himself uh, recorded before i did and in 1984, I did a the first solo album project that was devoted to the music for the key bugle. So that gotcha. Uh, but there were there were certainly people before me, and there were um, probably people in vaudeville and so forth that used this as a uh, used the key bugle as a novelty thing. True. I mm-hmm. just was uh, looking at one little bio sketch of a of a performer that. Uh, was reported to have played key bugle in a circus hmm. in uh, 1890. So oh, there's wow. a, there's an argument that it that it never actually went out of out of uh, performance. Yeah. I met the great 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 grandson of the of Halliday who took out the patent for the instrument in 1810. Mm-hmm. And he he played the key bugle. Hmm. He, he Very was cool. he was 80 years old when I met him. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And. Um, uh and he he had a couple of key bugles around i almost i should kick myself now but i could have bought an offer clad in the key bugle from him hmm. um he 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 sold it to he sold it to gribbon and that's how i met him through mm-hmm. gribbon. yeah
0: so so we so we've mentioned the the holiday name a few times and you mentioned how with your research you kind of had the idea of the bookends with 1810 being yeah. the beginning of it and then so on and you're alluding that there is more to the story so yeah so can we maybe fold in maybe two of my questions into one one is what is that that actual origin kind of story of the key bugle and then to fold in kind of the second question which I um, they may be related they may not what's the uh, what do you see as the difference between key bugles and key trumpets
2: okay well um... Uh, there now appears uh, that there, there's a, an, there was an ad in the London paper for a bugle with keys as early as 1800. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the person who put that ad in was an instrument dealer named George Astor. Uh, he was originally from uh, Germany, and he was familiar with bass horns that had were keyed low brass. You prob- you guys know about bass horns.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, serpents and things like that that he was selling. And he probably would have been aware of um, the early experiments with the keyed trumpet. Now, keep in mind, this is in 1800, okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Ten years before Halliday patents uh, his improvements on the key bugle. And... Um, so uh uh I think the uh Hummel concerto is from dates from eighteen o mm-hmm. yeah so this is a kind of uh, the, the theory that i I'm kind of uh proposing now is that this was sort of a mix of you know uh people who were um sort of brainstorming you know across uh, across cultures uh, for how to make a chromatic brass instrument
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it's kind of like the story is uh, uh, looking a little bit more like the story of how the automobile was invented. It wasn't invented by just one guy. You know, there was Osmobile and there was other guys, and there was a fire, and uh, the uh, inter- internal combustion engine of the Osmobile that worked could get out of the fire <laughs> <laughs> was the one that survived, and that's why we haven't. That's why we don't. We're not driving electric Osmobiles today. Right. <laughs> um, so at any rate, you know it's it's that kind of a complexity in the storyline, and um, it puts Halliday in a, a place where he made improvements in the instrument. His associates um, took advantage of this. There were other people that were uh, that he knew that, that were in his band and and probably trusted that um, that probably took advantage of this situation and probably shared this information with instrument, maker, instrument makers. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we know from court documents of disputes about uh, about the patent and who was licensed to, uh, to hmm. produce the instrument that this there were all, all kinds of complex relationships and uh, Halliday himself. Um, I got his sto- I got his story you know from from his great 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 grandson but four generations of the family retelling this story uh, sort of. Uh, you know put it from the holiday perspective rather than anything else for sure so um uh so after the initial shock of uh, uh, of seeing this ad in 1800 <laughs> <laughs> and we should you know basically uh, uh changed my narrative a lot
0: mm-hmm. interesting so
2: now in the third edition of the key bugle book if i ever uh, when i get it done it'll, it'll be a, a, a much more complex rich and nuanced story about uh, how this all happened.
0: Gotcha. I know a lot of history telling, you know, with our OCD mindsets, we would like for there to be like clear beginnings and and clear stories. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it's the truth. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, in some instances, history is a lot muddier than that. And and dates and and cleanliness isn't as clear as as maybe we would hope.
2: Yeah. (laughs) We say we write the history we need, you know. Yeah, that's Um, true. Uh, but, uh, I was, uh, and then I started thinking about Bob, Bob Eliasson's uh, early book on the key bugle in the United States. Mm -hmm. He actually talks about, um, four or five different origin stories Mm -hmm. and many of them could be true.
0: Mm -hmm. So kind of to clean it up, I guess we say that the instrument likely existed before 1810, but to kind of have... Some fact and uh, you know, definiteness in there. We say that 1810 is just the first patent filed for the instrument. Yeah.
2: Then, and uh, Astor himself died in uh, 1813. I, I think I have that date right. So, uh, so if he uh, and his uh, his brother, who was part of the firm, moved to uh, America, so the um, um, uh, so it it could be that just the Nature of business and so forth that he he never really got to fully produce, you know, lots of these instruments. Although I do I did see uh, an E flat small, I think it was an E flat uh, that was marked Astor in uh, Tony Bingham's shop about 20 years ago. So uh, that was an that was new to me at that time, and, and it has got me thinking about it. But but you know, the last 10 years it's uh, become a more nuanced thing. The key trumpet that Weidinger and uh, others were experimenting with is a natural trumpet that was a um, common, it was double wound, common in the classical era that would be fitted with a crooks for various keys. And uh, you know, going from high E flat down, and it's very similar in uh, in its um, physics to the English slide trumpet that Harper was using and so forth. But it has keys like a woodwind instrument. and they're Usually four or five of them, hmm. and uh, the instrument can be crooked from uh, higher higher pitches down. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you play the Hummel, uh, the, you know there's a part in the Hummel concerto where it's in E in the beginning, hmm. and um, people have often wondered why it modulates to C in the slow movement. And uh, you can just switch your crooks to a C crook and play hmm. it perfectly well. And um, so at any rate, it was uh, it was a very versatile instrument comparatively,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it was played by uh, a number of people. It was used in uh, harmony musique, and particularly Italian opera, and uh, uh, and uh, there were the famous Gambati brothers who were in New York and in London before that. The Italian trumpet players that played key trumpets.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so um, uh, so that's that's one instrument. Now the key bugle is a conical single wound instrument that has up to 12 or there's even one with 13 keys uh mm-hmm. seven keys make a key bugle chromatic fully mm-hmm. chromatic gotcha so you, if you're looking for a key bugle you want to find one that is uh, has seven keys mm-hmm. and uh um there are a number of different styles. As you can imagine, some, uh, some of the confusion of the early makers of the instruments, there were all kinds of little improvements that were put, put forth. And there are, in, in my book, I talk about different, well, maybe 10 different body styles mm-hmm. that, wow. that take place. But the principle of the keys is, work, is uh, basically the same. Gotcha. It has an open standing key uh, that is closest to the bell on almost all of them and um it's fully chromatic so it's a little bit uh because you're blowing a four foot pipe rather than an eight foot pipe uh you're uh, dealing with the initial partials and because it's conical it's basically the same dimensions as a modern flugelhorn bell Mm -hmm. so it has a kind of a woolly chet baker flugelhorn kind of a sound (laughs) that uh that is different from uh, the key trumpet, which has more of a natural trumpet qualities, mm-hmm, except it is vented. So that's the main difference, basically. Yeah. And the, so the repertoire is different. The instrument is different physi- uh, um, acoustically and physically. Gotcha. gotcha.
1: When the key bugle kind of came on the scene, was it picked up right away by players or, you know, was there some skepticism uh, surrounding it or, or anything like that?
2: Well, uh this was a time, you know, uh, the first key bugle player that showed up in the United States that we can find. There probably there may be even earlier ones now that we know that key bugles started a little earlier than we thought. But Willis, uh, Richard Willis arrived in the United States uh, in 1816, became the director of the West Point band. I Think he's buried at West Point. <laughs> and uh um uh and he seems to have, uh, I, I've been reading, uh, you know, the New York papers, now that they're all digitized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you can go back and, and uh, he performed a lot in New York City and he had students and he ordered uh, instruments for the West Point Band. And uh, performance um, reviews seem to be pr- pretty positive. Mm. On the other hand, you know, the Gambadi brothers, the guys who are playing the key trumpets in the opera, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they uh, they faced, uh, they, they faced a lot of uh, negative criticism
3: mm-hmm.
2: so uh, um, so I think um, uh, audiences especially in America were used were open to new things but also in Europe uh, there was uh, if you read uh, Hofmeister's uh, catalogs and so forth there are lots of advertisements for uh, new instruments and many of these new instruments newly designed instruments uh, were uh, you know, what we would call novelty instruments today but you know double flagilets and things like that but mm-hmm. the people that played them were um were respected you know, symphony musicians mm-hmm. there were people that were in uh, in the opera orchestras and and so forth so um uh so there was a kind of a feeling in the air for new something new some mm-hmm. uh, something that involves you know science
0: <laughs> yeah, do you think that a yeah. lot of these orchestral musicians were were so eager to try these instruments because they wanted to be the first one, if yeah. the instrument happened to take off, type of thing that they were the first ones to kind of popularize it?
2: Well, let's let's say if I was an uh, orchestral musician in uh, 1810, and my job was playing uh, dominant and tonic uh, uh, notes in a Mozart opera for.
3: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: For, for, you know, looking forward to the rest of my life, maybe I'd like to do <laughs> something a little bit more chromatic. Right. and also, um, uh, music was, uh, uh, so these, these instruments really expanded what you could play. And um, the repertoire for the key bugle really was uh, involved in this, both the popular, um, popular tunes of the day, Irish jigs and things like that. Uh, quick steps and, and so forth. But uh, but when they pl- played on programs, they played opera uh, arias and they played um, uh, variations on opera themes. and uh, So the Italian uh, opera influence on a lyrical uh, playing, the method books say that the key bugle is supposed to sound like a fine tenor voice. Hmm. And uh, so the uh, the idea of having a vocal model was uh, uh, was a very 19th century idea. The gotcha. other thing was that uh, that these the long trumpets, uh, the natural trumpets, were part of a tradition that came from guilds and uh, military use of the of the instrument. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, um, you had an instrument that um, any citizen, any democratic citizen of the United States, or for that matter, England could just pick up and buy a method book for and learn it themselves, yeah, maybe with yeah. the aid of some help from a a good brass player. But um, but uh, it was uh, what I would call a more democratic instrument. Hmm. A- gotcha. And the, You know, there's a wider range of people that could play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that were permitted to play it.
1: Right. True. Now, were there makers in the United States uh, of the Key bugle, or were they kind of one of those instruments that was being primarily imported.
2: Well, there were a lot of imports initially, uh, but, uh, what, you know, the United States had an uh, advantage of great water power and, um, uh, uh a great network of, uh, you know, and of course, a, a large body of, uh, of, of, uh, workers. You mm-hmm. know I mean? So, um, uh, there were firms like Graves and EG, Wright in the Boston and New England area. Right. Uh, there were a number of um, other people that, um, uh, that, and there were a lot of immigrants. There were a lot of uh, German-made instruments and, and German instrument makers that were coming from uh, places like Mark Neukirk and, and, um, in the area that's now right on the Czech and German border. Hmm. And um, uh, uh, as a matter of fact that, you know, in 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 uh, that area, the Volkland, they call it the uh, Musikstadt, hmm. uh, because hmm. everybody there makes instruments. Yeah, <laughs> in the nice. Island, and they have, and everybody has been making instruments there since you know the uh, uh, late Baroque times.
3: Hmm.
2: So uh, uh, there's today there's a you know there's B S B and S challengers and all those instruments are made there in an industrial park, but hmm. in the 19th century. They had uh, their own uh, uh, American consulate, and they sold instruments to America by the ton. Wow! Oh, they didn't measure instruments. They didn't say so many key bugles or so many harmonicas or whatever. Mm-hmm. They sold it by weight. <laughs> uh, so they that not you know the, they would have their mm-hmm. own almost an in- embassy there yeah. to uh, facilitate that trade gives you an idea of the volume of European instruments that were coming into the United States. And they came into places like Bethlehem. So some of the instruments that we, um, that we, that have American makers' names on them, uh, if they have, you know, German names especially, uh, they came, probably came from Mark Neukirchen. And and there was a, um, there was a trade back, and then uh, uh, you know the Allen valve, uh, the string action rotary uh, mm-hmm. valve, went back to Europe, and now that's uh, the dominant you know French horn um, connect you know the rotary yeah. valve right. that's used in a, in French horns. So um, uh, so there's this uh, flow to America of um, of tradespeople and um, and makers and players, and then there's this flow back of ideas, of improvements, of, uh, of, of things. So uh, so Saxony, and Volkland, and Mark Neukirchen, and Klingenthal, uh, Adorf, um, Graslitz, all of those places are making instruments for the world. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't include Paris, too, which is Paris mm, and London true. are also uh, exporting. We had a little bit of trouble with England, you know. <laughs> Just uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The war, uh, during the War of eighteen twelve. I refer yeah. to the War of eighteen twelve to an English person and go, What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I think funny. I think in England it's called the War American War of Insurrection. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you
2: go. And I said, Yeah, that's when you burned our capital, remember? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true.
0: <laughs> it's a it's always interesting because we can get so uh, you know, in the weeds and tunnel visioned with brass instruments and dates and locations and stuff and you know we always see that uh that Halliday 1810 date and then like the 1815 16 Richard Willis bringing it over to the United States date so 1810 1815 16 time frame yay key bugles but at the same time yeah you forget oh yeah the the war of 1812 was kind of <laughs> happening yeah. right in that time too which is crazy
2: yeah it's uh, uh, and a lot of musicians actually the you know like like war in general, uh, a lot, there were a, a lot of musicians that were employed in the military during mm-hmm. that time. So it solidified it, it solidified uh, some of the uh, um, uh, practices of American you know, military musicians. People like mm-hmm. um, Francis Johnson uh, probably learned a lot of their trade uh, as um, uh, as military people. Mm-hmm. Or at yeah. least adjuncts, you know, militia bands attached to a certain regiment. Yeah, yeah, right. definitely. Yeah. So we,
0: so you just mentioned Francis Johnson, and we've mentioned Richard Willis. Also, are there any other uh, notable keyed bugle players that were around, kind of in the keyed bugle's heyday in the eighteen hundreds?
2: Yeah, uh, I've got a couple hundred of them listed in my book. <laughs> Were, all right you know, so were, number one is yeah uh, well, uh, you know uh, there's Kendall and of course but there were for every Kendall you know for every Doc Severson there are you know 5,000 guys that want to be Doc Severson so yeah, uh, true. that's very true um uh, so it's it, that's pretty much the situation there the ones that, that had the paper trail like Kendall and um, Johnson who were widely touring and left uh, playbills and reviews and newspaper um, uh, advertisements and so forth. Those guys are the easy ones to research. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a little harder to, um, you you have to get into family records and other kinds of things to pick out, uh, get into some of the other guys and do a little bit more genealogy work Uh uh, on, on some of those characters. But there were a lot of them. And uh, there, uh, I think uh, I made a note to myself. There were 187 makers that I've been able to document. Yikes! Ah, and uh, so, you know, 187 makers are, you know, are. I mean, how many trump How many trumpet makers do we have today in the United States? In the, in the world, actually, you know. By comparison, this was uh, this was a huge endeavor, and it was. Um, uh, I think. Uh, when you point out, you know, the number of people that you can find that were players, the number of people you can find that were makers,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, now uh, we're finding a lot more music because um, the of the cataloging practice is being changed. You know, mm-hmm. in the old days, if uh, there was a an instrumentation list on something that a librarian was cataloging, he would just translate, or he or she would just translate the. Um, uh, the cornet or the whatever to a trumpet, you know, they just put True. that in the yeah. mm. in the cataloging records as trumpet. But now mm-hmm. uh, they're being a little bit more exact, uh, and all this music is being digitized. You can see uh, the the titles of uh, uh, of the actual instruments in their in their uh, whatever local dialect it is, whether it's a mm-hmm. trumpet, a clave, or all right um, or Cornetta Chave You know That kind of stuff Those <laughs> gotcha. um, um, uh, Those 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 original titles Are all showing up And we're finding A lot more music now Awesome um, That we didn't think Was there
0: Yeah Great
1: know the key bugle because we, we've talked a little bit about how um you know the advancements in instrument technology kind of flowed back and forth did those have like a noticeable effect on how the music of the time was composed like can can we see like uh you know any any kind of discernible you know jump in level of difficulty now that you've got all these these horns that are fully chromatic and and working their way around
2: um you know that's that's um, a little hard question because I don't think, outside of a couple of showpieces like Winslow Blues and Wood Up Quick Step and things, I don't think uh, the key bugle, was um, thought of as a, a flashy instrument,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, at least in, um, in uh, concert circles. Now maybe in a band setting, yeah. And also by the time um, by the time flashy cornet uh, solo kind of stuff came around. Uh, those bands were a little bit too loud to uh, blend very well with a good mm. key bugle player.
3: Mm. Gotcha.
2: So uh, you do see some of the older players still holding key bugles in some of the iconography of uh, you know pre-Civil War bands. But it wasn't it too long after that that you see almost all uh, over-the-shoulder instruments and bell-front E-flat players. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was uh at the end of the era there was less uh heterogeneous instrumentation than at the beginning of the era Mm -hmm. during the time of willis and um you know the uh, the english and irish things you know say from that period of 1800 to 1820 there were a lot of um, uh, mixed ensembles uh, things with uh, flute and clarinet and key bugle and Mm -hmm. bassoon Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
0: So we're, so we're 35 episodes now into the early American brass band podcast as a show. And we have actually not had the opportunity to talk about Ned Kendall, uh, to any great kind of length. So, uh, could you maybe give a little bit of background and context to Ned Kendall? And maybe we can use that as a way to segue into a piece like what up quick step where we can hear your, your performance of that.
2: Well, uh, uh, it's uh, Ned. Basically, is the most uh, documented uh, key bugle player in the United States. Uh, he was. Um, he must have. He died of tuberculosis uh, or consumption, as they called it then. <laughs> and, um, uh, and as late as 1861, they were still giving tribute concerts for Ned Kendall. I got a poster in my, my collection here from uh, where the uh, D.C. and uh, Rodolph Hall. Uh, had a band in New York that were giving a benefit concert for him uh, where wow. we couldn't play anymore. So his his memory uh, seemed, he must have been a very charismatic player because he's well-documented. And um, uh, in that Schwartz Bands of America, there's an account of him playing it with Gilmore, playing the Wood Up Quick Step. Usually Wood Up would be at the end of a program. Mm-hmm. I prefer to put my Wood Ups at the beginning of the program.
0: <laughs> yeah, get it out of the way right <laughs> yeah.
2: and um after you know after doing a certain kind of warm-up to set my chops a little higher uh yeah. maybe this would be a good time to play wood up and then we can talk about it sure this is um uh, this is from um my um uh, my 18 1980 1980- <laughs> <laughs> i'm not 1984 recording uh, uh called music for key bugle and it's the um, accompanied by the miss lucy long social orchestra and quicksip society mm-hmm. So you can see the uh, from that recording that there's some flexibility going on uh, with the key bugle. That's uh, rec- that's the key bugle playing uh, playing the thing through A A B B C C D D mm-hmm. with repeats. And um, uh, uh, you can imagine that uh, when uh, E flat cornet player would play the first phrase and it would be echoed by the key bugle player, that it might be even the most uh, Accomplished E flat key uh, E flat cornetist would be challenged by that one because the instrument mm-hmm. itself has an idiom that uh, is more fluid. Mm-hmm. You have to really practice your uh, flow studies on E flat cornet to to um, to uh, uh, to match uh, the the lyrical and arch of the air that 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 you can get on a key bugle. So it's. Um, I think that as uh is a lot to do with the respect that Ned Kendall had, and Ned Kendall wasn't the only guy that could play this the kind of this way the um uh, uh, was it d c hall yeah mm-hmm. uh, could play um this Eben Flag could play this mm-hmm. um and did you know has has it on his programs. Uh, and almost everybody, uh, at one point or other, once they became a uh, key bugle of a certain renown, had to sort of do it as an obli- obligatory thing. Just sort of like everybody has to play Virgin de la Macarena," you know.
0: I was going to say like the Carnival of Venice or something yeah. like
2: that. <laughs> right. it, it's that Carnival of Venice. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. actually, Carnival of Venice, you know, is a, ne- is a Neapolitan song. Mm-hmm. And it was used as a key, uh, key bugle uh, variation. Oh, well. So uh, there's, a, there's some early um, early programs that show that. So I had to find a a, a, a version of, key, of, of Carnival of Venice that I could play that didn't mm-hmm. go down to low G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> only, only plays, uh, the, the key bugle, I, I didn't mention this, but the key bugle goes from B below middle C, B natural below middle C, up to as high as a regular trumpet player could play. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so it doesn't go all the way down to the one, two, and three combination right. kind of
3: thing,
2: right? So, uh, you you need uh, either extra keys or um, or a valve instrument to get get to those uh, those low notes.
0: Does the largest number of keys on a keyed bugle, which I think you said is twelve, does yeah. that does that extend down to a one, two, and three combination, or?
2: I I look on those those keys as a kind of a gateway to the pedal tone register, and I think. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it, they're not easy to play. You have to shift your left hand down to those keys from where you were playing E and F, uh, mm-hmm. with your thumb and your forefinger of the left hand. And, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. I have a, uh, a, uh, an E flat one that has 10 keys,
1: mm-hmm. it's a
2: Graves. And, uh, sometimes I, I, you know, I use it as a way to get down to the pedal register, all of the, all key bugles have a really good pedal register, but there's a gap between that low B and the G, so mm, you, need, uh, uh, you need a B flat, um, a natural, and a flat, and then then you can play uh, below that, Gotcha. Mm. Uh, it, just using the natural fingerings. And it's it's a good inst- you know it's a good way to sometimes in a cadenza or something, I scare people by playing pedal tones. And- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Where's, what, where's- the hell's, what the hell is going on?
0: <laughs> we're, well, we're so used to the, uh, I don't know, if you want to call it the, the typical trumpet player, you know, the Maynard mentality trying to scream. So if you if you get somebody that's getting these pedal tones out, I, I yeah. guess it's, it's a little scary. <laughs> uh,
2: you know, it's, it's exactly, you know, exactly op- opposite think, you know. You're mm-hmm. in a, you know, think of a bizarro world when you're playing the key bugle. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> Everything that a trumpet player's instincts tell them to do it, it is the reverse
1: yeah that's true
0: that's true can you maybe uh talk to us uh for a second about this example that we're about to play demonstrating the b flat keyed bugle
2: right this is from an album that i did with a london Gabrielli brass ensemble and chris larkin had discovered a uh, some of this music in a archive in uh sweden and uh uh he put together uh, a huge recording project with uh some of the best some of the best uh london players john wallace is playing key bugle on this excerpt oh, cool. i think he's playing second key bugle There you <laughs> <And go.
3: laughs>
2: second repiano key bugle so i was in pretty good company there yeah that's and, awesome and, uh and uh, uh oh, geez, steve holloway is the is the uh is the other key bugle, so you'll actually hear three key bugles in here. I'm the solo key bugle, and the other guys are the piano. and then this is um, uh, this is uh, military music from um, from the 18 teens in uh, in Sweden. So it would have been after the key bugle had spread to Europe, uh, you know, the late teens, uh, after the uh, Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. and um, and it was uh, being you know. Taken up in Russia and Scandinavia and, and other other places in military bands, so uh, it's a uh, and Crucell is uh, and and Braun are the composers jointly. I think one did the Adagio and one did the uh, the variations, and um, they are more familiar to people who play the clarinet. My sister used to play Crusell on her <laughs> clarinet when she was uh, practicing in high school, so um, she they're not usually thought of as, uh, but there's a huge repertoire of this style of music in Scandinavia mm. still today. So if, that, if somebody wanted to do a research on that, if you speak the Scandinavian languages, that would be a, a, a great area to research.
0: You had alluded a few times to uh, different instruments in your collection. I think you might have mentioned earlier in the interview that your collection may extend beyond key bugles. But maybe we can use this opportunity to maybe uh, talk about some instruments that you own that you might view as being like the gems of your collection or anything that might be particularly notable uh, or have some type of provenance.
2: Uh, well, I have uh, three Graves uh, key bugles. Most of the time I'm playing the Graves Boston. That's the, my favorite one. Mm-hmm. And that has 10 keys. But I, 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 I've got to be honest with you guys. I uh, mostly use the, the seven keys that, that make the instrument chromatic. I very seldom, unless I'm trying to do some kind of a stunt for a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a student or something that, um, that I, uh, I play the extra keys. Uh, so, the, uh, so I have those three E-flats, and I have another E-flat by Firth Hall and Pond um, that is, um, was uh, destroyed in a fire, uh, mm-hmm. it, and uh, it was sold to me uh, as just a burnt shell. And it was burned, not-
0: burned recently, or oh, back, a in-
2: back in? A, a while back. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and uh, I, I got the shell... And I was originally just going to use the shell to uh, measure the holes and things like that, because it was all exposed. Mm-hmm. And it was flattened. And, and Rob Stewart um, took that instrument and made a beautiful instrument with it. It looks, you know, Rob has copied the Graves instruments in mm-hmm. the right Wright instruments. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so it has a set of Graves keys on it. And if you look at it from a distance, you think that's a Graves key bugle. Wow. But it's wow. a full Holland pond, and it plays really well. And um, and B-flats, I have uh, another, My one of my favorites, but it's uh, not one I play, is uh, a Graves, uh, it's uh, J Keat for Graves. Hmm. Keat was an English uh, maker who worked for Key uh, in London and came to the United States and uh, joined the uh, Graves shop. Hmm. And uh, he was making some in- instruments that were independent, and then he used to started using the Graves uh, Workshop, and then started calling it J. Keat for Graves, and that's a beautiful instrument.
3: Nice.
2: Um, I have a Percival uh, B-flat, an English one. I have a, a marked un- Neu- Neu- Mark Neukirchen instrument that has characteristics of the Bookland makers.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have a French key bugle I just picked up recently. It's a Goutreau, but it's unmarked but it has mm. all the characteristics of the Gutro instruments. And um, uh, the one that I play uh, is a seven-key um, unmarked instrument, but it's identical to signed Frederick Pace's And
0: I'm not familiar with that name. Pace, is that...
2: well, you should know Pace. Pace was uh, was an important uh, Irish maker. Is one of the first licensees to make key bugles. And um, he and his sons moved moved to uh, London, and Frederick was one of his sons. And um, uh, they they started making uh, the uh, Royal Patent Key Bugles. Halliday inventor, and you see that gotcha, on gotcha. The bell rims of of uh, hundreds of instruments. So hmm. gotcha, that makes sense. Um, uh, so pace was a, a if you if you pick up a pace, you're gonna find it. It's a, probably a, a, a good instrument.
0: Gotcha.
2: Um let's see. Oh, I have a Greenhill who was another mm-hmm. early English maker. Um, and uh, I think that's about the ones about the end of the list. Oh, I have a Baker. Baker was a flute maker in hmm. London and uh I'm I'm the only person I think I know that has a Baker. Interesting. Nice. So there's there's about a dozen of them all together. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing you may have been alluding earlier that you have interest beyond key bugle is, is, uh, does the collection kind of extend beyond the key bugle family or is your collection habits kind of contained to, to just that?
2: It's kind of spiraled out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Every place, um, my wife and I love to travel and we go to South America or, um, or Europe or whatever. we, you know, always looking for instruments. So I have um, a lot of folk instruments from the world, oh, Africa. Cool. Uh, I have a lot of folk uh, brass instruments, lures from Scandinavia and and hornets and um, instruments that are made out of animal horn and things like that from Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but uh, I have a couple over-the-shoulder instruments and, you know, Civil War era instruments and a fair, I think I have about 14 or so cornets.
3: Hmm.
2: Ah. I, have three ah. corne, I have three Cornopians um, that are uh, also gutro. I think. Hmm. They're unsigned, but they have those characteristics. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was actually my mu, my museum job. I was a consultant for uh, Instrument and Museum Schloss Kremsegg in, in hmm. Upper Austria, and my job was basically to try to identify uh, some of the unmarked instruments in the collection Interesting. Wow. so it was fascinating that's why I was I got familiar with the mark Neukirchen yeah yeah makers uh, uh, very early on because uh, I was working with Herbert Haida when the collection was in the United States and um, uh, he would you know take out an instrument and put it on the table and goes mark Neukirken <laughs> 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 um, go. how do you do that how do you know that? And he would, hmm. you know, he would sort of school me on uh, uh, some of the design features and so forth. Wow. And uh, he had he had cataloged uh, instruments in the Leipzig collection, and already knew, uh, you know, already had thirty years of history uh, about fi- you know identifying these instruments. So he yeah, was wow. a great great mentor to 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 work with and study
0: could be a cool party trick, right? You're at a party and you just put down an unmarked uh, instrument. and yeah. <laughs> see?
2: Well, actually, yeah. uh, that happens a lot. You know, people people say, I, you know, come up with a paper bag at the end of a concert and there's a you know, <laughs> bugle in there and yeah. what is this?
0: You shake it a little bit, listen, <laughs> see. Uh,
2: and I usually, my response is, I don't know what it is, but I'll buy it off you for, you know. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. <laughs> that is funny.
0: Out of curiosity, are there any instrument makers currently making any type of reproductions of keyed bugles?
2: Well, you guys are probably more familiar with Rob Stewart uh, than anybody else, but there are. Um, I uh, uh, I think that Rob is the finest instru- uh, keyed bugle maker in the world, probably mm-hmm. the that's ever lived in the world. Um, his instruments are are. Are beyond, you know, the best that you can buy, that you can get it historically. I mean, mm-hmm. so if you can get a Rob Stewart reproduction, uh, it's worth the wait. I, I I got introduced to Rob at a, a beautiful time when he was, uh, you know, still very very active, and he was just getting interested in this stuff. And I would, I traded him an a of Clyde for a restoration of two key bugles and a cornopean, that kind of thing. You we
3: know? oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and Rob plays the key bugle a little bit, or at least did, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, he was involved in some of the early key brass conferences that we had in the eighty late eighties, mm-hmm. and yeah. on the East Coast. So uh, he's a he's he's probably the, rest, the best uh, maker. Yeah, I yeah. don't know of too many other people that are making instruments on a regular basis. I tried to work with Jurgen Vogt um, uh, and Mark Neukirchen. Uh, and he uh had my instruments for a week and measured them very carefully and um he made, he copied my uh my pace and uh, also an e flat my e flat graves but mm-hmm. uh but uh i think he i think the museum bought those two instruments i don't think he made instruments after that so mm-hmm. yeah, unless they were on special order and uh right. i found that i couldn't they weren't exact copies of Got you. what we were what we were doing so uh it didn't turn out as well as it, as it might have
3: mm-hmm. that
2: makes
0: yeah.
1: sense yeah so but before we um you know move on to any any kind of closing thoughts i did want to get your take on um kind of what you see as like the importance of the value of kind of studying uh you know these older instruments and this older music you know in in today's kind of classical music world that kind of really seems to be super forward looking and, and trying to innovate and do, you know, you know, what's, what's the next like weird ensemble we can uh, come up with for a composition. But, um, you know, as, as someone who has, you know, written a book and done an album and a ton of research on these, on these old instruments, what's, what's kind of your take on the value for, you know, particularly younger, you know, maybe like college aged musicians to, to really dive into this stuff.
2: Well, um, it's not a moneymaker. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't sell the farm uh, uh, to, get the, the, to buy a key bugle collection and write books. Right. Um, um, but uh, there is some interesting stuff. Uh, I there's uh, I think um, uh, eighty or ninety method books that I've been able to locate, and um, they talk. Uh, uh, particularly the French ones are very insightful as to into uh, phrasing, mm-hmm. uh, and if you, um, you know, uh, uh, the do you guys play any of the concone studies, the lyrical studies no, of, on baritone? Not, not
0: familiar. No. Um,
2: well, um, he was a vocal teacher, an uh, Italian vocal teacher in Paris, and wrote uh, con, uh, several. Um, you know sight sight singing kind of things, and trumpet players play the cone cone studies. So I got uh, some of those, and actually, Concone was an exact contemporary of the key bugle era
3: hmm.
2: and uh, so wow. I'm starting to play some of those things on and it, it's all about phrasing it's all and his rules for uh, for uh, for the key bugle methods uh, expose.
0: Are they yeah. etudes or are they like songs, yeah. like the art of phrasing, Arben type they're, of stuff?
2: Yeah, they're songs without that words. They're they're basically meant oh. for as a sight singing study. Mm-hmm. But they have a gotcha, good, gotcha. they have nice piano accompaniments, and they work really well. So yeah. if you if you want to play off, you, they could be played on off of Clyde, or they could be played on Kate Bugle, or any number of instruments. Everybody benefits from playing nice lyrical pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you think there's any benefit to playing on the instruments themselves? Or do you think the, the largest takeaway is just the repertoire and the, the exercises from the period?
2: You know, I had hoped uh, originally that I would be like Christopher Monk, that I would have been able to uh, inspire um, somebody to mass produce um, key bugles the way he did the cornetto. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, that there'd be a lot of people playing key bugles on, and off of you know, wow. throughout the world, I think uh, ophicleide players have been more successful about promoting their instrument than uh, than Key bugle players have. The ophicleide, uh, because of French colonialism, had a wider distribution
3: <laughs> uh,
2: in in many ways and lasted longer. There were still catalogs in the you know uh, ophicleides in the catalogs of up to World War One. So uh, uh, South America had Alpha Clydes playing. They were playing there. Uh, there were key bugles in Mexico, by the way, oh, cool. uh, finding out. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, uh, but but generally speaking, there was a, a, a more successful transmission of the, of the instrument, and uh, and the revival consequently has been easier. And they have people that are making pretty decent rep- reproductions of of Alpha Clydes, apparently. And, places like china
0: yeah yeah definitely yeah
2: so uh, yeah. that's that's that never happened with the key bugle and and i regret that i wish i'd uh, uh would have been more um entrepreneurial about about that in terms of, re- of a revival because mm. there is good music there's a concerto by heinrich um that i i recently played with an orchestra in california mm. uh february before last
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um uh, and it's a it's a, a a good piece so when we get to the promotional part oh yeah
0: definitely yeah. yeah for sure when you're playing keyed bugle with like orchestras and stuff like that are you struggling at all with intonation but so i'm assuming a lot of these bugles are probably in high pitch right
2: uh actually no uh, the huh. early key bugles are um more uh, most of them live very comfortably at um 440 oh well and it wasn't high pitch. Came a little bit later than hmm. the heyday. There are key bugles that are in high pitch, but they were, they were, in they were instruments that were made in the 50s and 60s.
0: Oh, interesting. And
2: um, so, if you get a, a a key bugle from the 20s, it's a pretty good bet that it's going to be uh, uh, 440. The problem with key bugles is finding out which is the. You know, it's a hybrid instrument in the sense that it has a crook. So the instrument is, you know, technically pitched in C but it has a crook to B-flat. Mm-hmm. Some of those instruments play better in B-flat. No, they're obviously you. designed with their tone holes in mind to, to accommodate a B-flat length. And some of them play better in C. So I you have you. to make that determination. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, uh, so, and then and then there, I just have a different size crook that I stick in for high pitch. So I got uh, you. Well, well, I play with the Saxons band. Um, oh, cool uh they they were a 456 or something like that they were they mm-hmm. managed to come down a little bit and i came up a little bit yeah and actually. um used a, a short shank mouthpiece on it and
3: mm-hmm. we got interesting
2: we got somewhere in the middle
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: there you go <laughs>
2: but, and the intonation is um something you gotta spend time with long tones lots of alternate fingerings
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh have so, got to figure out the instrument
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah for sure I know that we do have a number of college students that do listen to uh, this show. Maybe as a closing thought, do you have maybe any suggestions or words of encouragement to maybe college students who may be interested in either acquiring a Keyed Bugle, learning Keyed Bugle, or just getting into the research area of Keyed Bugle Early Brass?
2: If you get a Keyed Bugle, find one with seven keys and make friends with a good instrument technician who mm-hmm. is familiar with woodwind um, key work. And yeah, um, sure. um, the most successful pads that I have used are the Rob Stewart variety, which are the suede side of, the, of a single sheet of leather on the, on the outside, so the, uh, the suede out, mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than the saxophone pads or clarinet pads or whatever. They have a tendency to be too thick and they interfere with your intonation. Gotcha. So uh, the keys have to work like a good woodwind instrument, and it takes someone who can fiddle with the, you know, the steel springs that they have. Some of them have iron springs, which mm. are original, and um, uh, they're tricky. So you have to get a good regulated instrument. That takes time, and it might take as much as you paid for the, uh, for the instrument itself to get it restored properly, so it can play well for you. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, there are ways that you can test the instrument to make sure that it plays at a pitch level. I think it's easier to play with 440 hmm. from my my perspective, mm-hmm. um, at, at least playing with modern string players and pianists and stuff like that. I'm working on a recording project um, right now in the initial stages. I've got the repertoire list, and I'll be going in the studio in a month yes. doing uh, some solo unaccompanied pieces. But uh, the rest of it's for piano and string quartet. There's a lot of there's a lot of music out there, and I think as librarianship improves and continues to be more specific about instrumentation lists, you're going to find plenty of stuff to research. And um, um, if uh, and the other thing I would encourage young trumpet players and people who are interested in these kind of instruments to do is to find find a niche, you know. Don't be afraid to um, to be different for a while. You, mm-hmm. People might uh, not appreciate it right away, but uh, after a while, you'll uh, you'll you know it'll pay off. So work on the mm-hmm. basics and uh, and uh, and that includes the basics of research. You know, finding, uh, making uh, networks in the libraries and you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: conservatories and places that might have this material.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Cool, cool.
1: Cool. This has been a fantastic conversation. We really thank you for your time. Um, Where can people go if they're curious about um, any of the recordings that you've done, maybe, or uh, you? wrote a book on the key Bugle. So <laughs> where can people find um, all of that stuff if they're interested in, in diving deeper into anything that we talked about today?
2: Okay. Um, the book is called The Key Bugle. And you want to get the second edition.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: First edition um, uh, is pretty much out of date. I doubled the material in the second edition. I'm currently working on a third edition. But don't wait for that because <laughs> I'm, I'm 72 years old and I might not finish it.
1: No, no, don't say it. You'll
2: finish
0: it. (laughs) You just want people to buy it twice, right?
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely buy it it twice. And then um, when I was working for the museum in uh, Austria, I wrote a book called Das Flügelhorn. It's our collection from the um, Strypfeaster Collection in Instrument and Museum Schloss Kremzig. And that is all the conical brass instruments that belong to the Flügelhorn family. Mm-hmm. so it's not just flugelhorns and key bugles it's uh, um uh, euphoniums and all kinds of inner things it has huge uh it's a it's a kind of a coffee table book all right it has uh, beautiful pictures. one of my students called it flugelhorn porn <laughs>
3: there you
0: go
2: photographed <laughs> so still...
0: yeah yeah so clear for sure
1: right
2: <laughs> and uh, uh uh so those uh i think you can get das flugelhorn at the um uh, on it's the payvey median is the, is the publisher, but it has an ISBN number so you could probably get it over um, um, over Amazon. My key bugle is by, is published by Scarecrow Press mm-hmm. and um, the second edition you want to get. and that also can be uh, purchased through Amazon or the publisher Scarecrow Press. So if you go on their, their, their websites, um. They will they'll be uh, happy to take your money.
3: <laughs> for sure.
2: I have I have extra the the uh, website for the Das Flugelhorn. By the way, that book is both in English and in German. English okay. is the second language of Austria. Great. In Great. the in the museum business, so it's uh, bilingual, and you don't have to worry. But the website you buy it from is German. And you, gotcha. you know, some people are put off by uh, having to do business in German. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not immediately apparent how you buy it. So uh, <laughs> I have about 10 copies that if someone wanted to contact me, I'd be happy to sell it at a, 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 ra- a radically reduced pr- um, thing, and they wouldn't have to pay the uh, shipping from Europe. Awesome. So uh, people can contact me at ralph.com dudgeon, D-U-D-G-E-O-N at Cortland C-O-R-T-L-A-N-D dot edu. I also have a method book for the key bugle that I I uh, wrote in 19. Well, I've been I think it's published in the second edition of that was 87. So um, that's a little uh, uh, that has a lot of the main repertoire of the of the instrument in it and a lot of practice things that come out of uh, earlier method books. Nice. And of course, anybody has any, I, I, give zoom lessons, um, on, on, uh, key bugle and other instruments and, uh, be happy to zoom with somebody that was uh, serious about learning the instrument. So awesome. Yep. Is
0: that, is that method book available anywhere online or is that directly through uh, you? Also, no?
2: it's a, it's pretty obscure. <laughs> <laughs> I had, well, uh, in the eighties, I had a little self publishing, uh, uh, project that I did out of my attic, and mm-hmm. basically it was everything that I did for my school groups. Or we had a Renaissance band called Sonare, and uh, and Miss Lucy Long, uh, Quick Step Society. Um, we uh, uh, we you know just published that stuff as we did it. So the key bugle book is called the Key Bugler's Companion, and um, uh, you can get it directly from me.
0: Okay, great. Excellent. We will be sure to include any links and your email address will include that on our show notes on our website, as well as in the YouTube description. If people are listening to this on YouTube, uh, we'll make sure to make it as easy as possible to, to find all these things and to, to get in contact with you.
2: Great. Definitely.
0: Well, we can't thank you enough, Dr. Dudgeon, for taking the time. This morning, this afternoon, to, to speak with us about your musical background, about your experiences and historic brass and the keyed bugle. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah. Well, you're have quite a g-
2: welcome. It was a pleasure to, to meet and talk with both of you.
0: Thank you again so much to Dr. Ralph Dudgeon for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We have been on the air for almost a year exactly. And we are... Super excited to finally have the opportunity to have Dr. Dudgeon on and to be able to talk more in depth about the key bugle, kind of the instrument that helped spark the American brass band movement in the 1830s. So, thank you again, and uh, Stephen, take it away.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it was a great, uh, great conversation. I'm very glad that we can have him on. Uh, you can visit our website for show notes uh, for this episode that have links to a lot of the resources that he mentioned uh, in the episode. And also up there in the show notes, we always have a featured album for every episode. So the one for this episode is Antique Brasses. Uh, This is the London Gabrielli Brass Ensemble with uh, Christopher Larkin conducting. We played an excerpt in the episode um, from this album, the Carl Braun and Bernard Crusell adagio and polonaise for solo key bugle and brass. So you heard a little bit of this album already, but it's got a whole bunch of other music on it. You've got, what do we got here? 27 tracks in total. So there's some Salieri, uh, there's more Crusell, there's um, Beethoven. Um, and a lot of other good stuff on this album. So you can find that on the... It's it's released on the Hyperion label. Uh, you can find it directly on their website. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Um, you can just download the MP3s. Uh, you can pay for it right right through the record label, which is always good. Uh, that way you don't have to go through Amazon and give up more of your hard-earned cash uh, mm-hmm. to, to the the machine that is amazon <laughs> you, can, you can support the, the label directly and the transition music in this episode comes from dr dudgeon's solo album uh, music for keyed bugle and those uh, tracks were the lucy long quick step and the bugle quick step you can purchase that album by emailing dr dudgeon and his email address is up on our show notes
0: we look forward to sharing part two of our key brass march with you all. Next week, we'll have Andy Kirkshaw talking about the Afa kind of the lower counterpart to the key bugle. So tune back in for our next episode where we'll be talking with him about that. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you then.